Hello everyone and welcome to Dissonant Dialogues, Challenges in Classical Music, but we'll probably refer to us as Dissonant Dialogues just for short. I am Emily Zwijak and I'm here with Claire. Claire, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are doing you? Well. I'm doing great. I'm just excited to get back into podcasting and just having more time to chat and talk about all these yeah. important things in music. So yeah, so we're, we're your co-hosts. Uh, today is just going to be kind of like an introductory sort of thing. So we do have an Instagram page where we wrote like little bios of each other. Um, but here you guys have asked some questions for us that we're going to answer and just kind of talking a little bit more about ourselves, how we got into music and getting to know us and our diverse perspectives as down the seasons we introduce particular topics and get into all that stuff. And if you don't know, I'm a mezzo um, and Emily's a violinist. So different instruments, different experiences. And I think our unique perspectives on those two fields will be part of what makes this conversation interesting. A little general introduction. So I'm Emily. I'm 21 years old right now, and I am a senior at the Chicago College of Performing Arts at Roosevelt University. I'm pursuing two degrees right now, so one in music education and then the other is in violin performance. Uh, we have it in this program where you can pursue two degrees like this at the same time. Uh, it's a very like piece together kind of program because it's a lot of work. So it's put together over five years. I'm getting mine done in four and a half. And I think it's gonna be totally worth it because as we'll talk about ourselves, I have a strong interest in not only performing, but also teaching. Part of my music ed degree is getting to know other instruments. So although I talk about violin performance, I have a bit of a perspective on cello as well. Cello is my secondary. I got cello lessons when I was in high school, studied it pretty strongly. Um, I also teach cello lessons, so that's fun. Um, but along with the music ed degree, I had to learn I don't want to say every single instrument, but quite a few instruments. Yes. So um, some more than others I was kind of involved in. So I have a little bit of a range of experience there in terms of uh, instrumentation. Um, yeah. And you're a glutton for punishment. So you're doing all the work at once. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yes. yeah. Well, I am Claire. I'm 27. Um, I graduated from Chicago College of Performing Arts in 2020. I started in 2015. So I took a little bit of extra time to finish. Um, wonderful timing to graduate in May of 2020. Um, so I've been out of school a few years and um, yeah, and trying to figure out what my place looks like as I have graduated into a world that is forever changed. Um, and uh, also my struggles with disability and chronic illness and how that affects what my career path will look like. So I don't have a whole lot of impressive resume points to talk about in terms of what I've done since graduating, but I have this, so hopefully it's a starting point. I, yeah, I made sure just in performance, so did not do all the work that you had to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like the music education degree, it's it's just a lot of classes, like extra yeah. classes you have to take on child development, like classroom management, like yes. that stuff. Um, yeah, that, I think that's what makes it, it's so like workload, like heavy, um, yeah. where for performance majors, they try, or at least they should try to leave more room for practicing. Um, and I know that think. that's kind of being worked on. You would think, right? <laughs> you would think that. <laughs> I well, think it seems like um, a lot has changed over the time that like, mm -hmm. I've like just hearing what your schedule looks like, it seems like they, I mean, some things have changed in terms of how they schedule things. I think the pandemic has forced a lot of music programs to look at 
what they really prioritize and what maybe they were clinging on to because they thought that we should suffer as much as they did. <laughs> probably, honestly, that's, yeah. yeah, that's probably it. Um, Cause yeah, before I went to school, I know music theory was like, at least I heard it was five days a week. Five days know, a week, 8 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I went, it was four days a week and Friday was like, you can go in for help if you need it. Um, and now I think it's down to two days a week, if I'm correct, two or three days a week. That's so, amazing. But also yeah. how did they fit everything in? They must really have changed. Yeah. I would have failed, like for sure. I couldn't have done it, but that's just me. I, I um, almost did. I repeated quite a few levels of theory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So first question I think is always something that musicians are asked is how did we get into music? So yes. what was our our uh, moment? I know some people have those moments where it's like, yeah, this is what I want to do or just how things kind of fell into line. Uh, Claire, do you want to start? Sure. Um, I absolutely do have a moment. Um, so for me, I think I was definitely musically inclined when I was little, based on the stories that my my family tells. Um, we would have little church choirs and I would go right up to the microphones. You know, they were spaced out for the whole, you know, choir of kids. And when mom would ask why I stepped out of my spot on the risers to go right to the microphones, this is when I was maybe four, I said I thought I sounded better than the other kids. So I didn't want them to hear the kids. I wish I had just a little bit of that confidence still. Yeah, um, <laughs> music school um, knocks that out of you, but. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, it's seriously. Um, and uh, so definitely my, my mom, my aunts have stories about me asking questions that they eventually figured out were about chord progressions, but obviously I did not have the vocabulary, but asking why songs had a certain pattern. Uh, I started begging for piano lessons when I was about three. Um, but my moment with opera in particular, I was in choir and doing music theory classes from the time I was four years old. Um, and I was just enamored with my choir director. I, I was so shy around her, but I, I thought the sun rose and set with her. Like I was obsessed with her and, um, and completely enamored. And when I was seven, my parents, Ironically, I grew up in Texas. They took us on a trip to Chicago. First time I ever went to Chicago. And we went to the American Girl store with my, my little sisters. Um, at the time, Dallas did not have its own American Girl store. And they let us all pick out a doll. And I picked out Samantha, you know, this Victorian or I guess Edwardian um, doll that at the time I looked exactly like, uh, which is probably why I picked her out. <laughs> and she came with a book that said, um, Welcome to Samantha's World. And it had all of these pages about the Victorian and Edwardian era, life in America at the turn of the century. Um, and these beautiful illustrations about like Victorian dollhouses and what the clothes look like and, you know, what different classes we're working at and some very graphic stories about like factory workers and child labor and American Girl does not shy away from those topics. Um, but the page that had me captivated was the page on going to the opera. And it, I just remember this two page spread. It had a painting of a famous Victorian opera singer named Adelina Patti. And um, her, it was a like painting depiction of her in the Barber of Seville. Um, and it had this, you know, mannequin wearing like this glittering opera gown and the little opera glasses and playbills. And it talked about how back then wealthy people kind of went to the opera to see and be seen, but oftentimes weren't always paying attention. And even though like the tiaras and the opera gloves and everything was beautiful, I was enamored by this little paragraph, this little blurb about Adelina um, on the side of the page with a picture of her when she was like a 12 year old um, and talking about how 
she became an opera singer. And I just remember looking at that and saying, that's what I'm going to do. I didn't know what opera really was. I'm sure I had some sort of stereotypical idea and I would be 12 before I got to see my first one um, because my family had moved um, to the Dallas area from Austin. And at the time, Dallas did not have its own opera house. So you had to drive to Fort Worth, which is about a two hour drive. Um, and, uh, and we had teeny tiny nosebleed seats. My parents with three kids all under 12 um, my sisters who were not interested, and we went to see Marriage of Figaro, which is a pretty pretty basic first opera to see. And I just remember weeping. Um, the Countess has a big solo. this confirms it this is what I'm supposed to do and I had such jealousy to watch someone I loved watching the live performance but I just remember the whole time thinking like that needs to be me I have to be on stage I have to do this um and and the rest is history <laughs> oh I love that and I love hearing like people's moments like that yeah. I know a lot of people have it not everybody does but like the people's no. moments when you have that it's it's very special yeah. Um, I love that the way that you described it too. It's just, oh my God, I love it. Well, I'm very interested um, in your story because I haven't heard how you got into violin. Yeah, I guess mine's uh, unusual <laughs> to say the least. How I got into um, violin in particular because uh, it started off pretty like average. You know, in fourth grade, we are offered to play a musical instrument. And at my school, we have a band and orchestra. And, well, to say the least, I have an older brother, and he was in band at the time, a couple years older than me, played percussion. And I, <laughs> I had always been, like, compared to him through teachers in our school, you know, going to the same school, having the same teachers growing up. It was constant comparison, and he was just this successful kid in band. And I'm like, okay, well, just in my head, I'm like, yeah, I have to do band. I have to be like him. I have to follow in his footsteps, do what he does, and be just as great. Um, kind of sad, but <laughs> that is what was going through my head. Yeah. And so I was like, all right, well, I have to do band. And actually the first instrument I really wanted to play was flute. Um, but then someone shied me away from that. <laughs> there was an adult in my life that had tried playing flute when they were my age and they're like, oh, it's so hard. You'll never be able to do it. Don't even bother. And I was like, my mom okay. was a flute player and uh, oh, really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is hard from what I've heard. Yeah. And it did not help that when they were giving demonstrations of the instruments, the band director the only instrument she could not make a sound on was flute. So we didn't even get that sound. But regardless of it, I still wanted to play it. I loved it. Yeah. And yeah, so that tried me away. And hearing this like power adult figure in my life saying, oh, it's way too hard. You won't be able to do it. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm like, all right, let me go down like one pitch level, like not one pitch level, but you know, like the clarinet. Um, Cause I liked the higher sound. I'm like, all right, I'll do clarinet then. So I played clarinet for three years then, fourth grade through sixth grade. Um, I even got offered to play bass clarinet, so wow. uh, that was a little part of my life as well in sixth grade. Um, but throughout the entire time, I kind of had shoved away the strong desire to play a string instrument because those were demonstrated for us too. And actually, a lot of my friends went into orchestra and were playing in orchestra and constantly watching them perform in concerts and seeing videos and just always thinking, man, that's really like, I just 
something about like the strings and the wood, like it was something that I just felt like I had to hold and I had to do and like feel the vibrations. Like, I always wondered what that felt like as you play. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of a random, I don't even remember what the thing was, but there was something that was happening at our school as I was transitioning then to, about to transition to junior high. And I had kind of complained to my mom and I was like, man, like I probably just should have done orchestra. Like I, I would have like done it and I felt pressured to do it or to do band and I, I never explored it. And she was like, well, do you want to just do orchestra? And I was like, I can. Like, really? That's a thing? Uh, and she's like, yeah, like, we can, like, figure it out, make it work. And oh, my God, did that bring chaos. The, <laughs> oh, my God, the competition level between band and orchestra, which one was better, was so chaotic, which is I'm sure. so ridiculous in our school. And people hated me. They hated me. The teacher, the band teacher that didn't even know me from junior high, that knew my brother, hated me, like, wholeheartedly. Now we're okay. But she really disliked me for that switching. And the thing is, I really wasn't that good at clarinet. I was decent, but I was not that good. Um, so my best friend at the time had played violin, and she offered to leave her violin over at my house one day so I could practice the rest of the day, and she'd pick it up the next day. And the whole day, I just practiced. And I, like, yeah. sped through, like, the first Essential Elements book on my own. It was so much fun. And I had a summer then to learn in three years worth of work and I private teacher she was like the sweetest lady ever she was perfect to start off with you know she wasn't demanding like you have to catch up you have to do this no it was all about I had the passion I had the determination and she helped foster that and yeah I went into junior high and I to say the least was better than some of the eighth graders too our, our junior high was seventh and eighth grade so yeah um I yeah and then I became concert master um eighth grade year and I played a solo with the orchestra I got the national school orchestra award and it was just incredible but um my I guess I kind of had two moments then because I didn't realize that music could be a career, which probably sounds really silly, but I was Can like, oh, I guess it's just, yeah, that's true. Like, it's just something people do on the side, I guess. And yeah. I wanted to be a veterinarian, but like once my music director at the time, and I'm still really close with her. And she's like, you know, like you could go into music, you could teach, you could perform. And I was like, I want to do both. Like I could do that. I'm going to do both. Okay. And then I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to do. It's just what I have to do. This is where my purpose lies. Like, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, and then, um, as things were, I had made that decision and things were becoming more demanding of me, I got a new violin teacher that uh, assigned me seven new technique books in our first lesson. Uh, love him. He's awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was very, he pushed me really hard. And then I got to go see, um, he played viola and violin and his wife played cello. I got to see both of them perform in the Illinois Philharmonic Orchestra concert. Aww. And that was my first, like, real experience, I guess. I mean, I'd seen the CSO play, but it's so different when you're watching your teachers perform. Oh, and it was sure. the last minute invitation and I went and, oh my God. Yeah, it was that moment. I remember I, I was sick that day. Like I had a cold and I wasn't really feeling that good, but like the cold just like disappeared. Uh, they played Edgar Meyer's Violin Concerto. Never heard of it before, but to this day, it's like one of my favorite pieces. And if you listen to the first movement too, you will get why it was like that, that moment for me, the piece even like yeah. It was almost like an inspiration itself. The the style and everything was incredible.
and of course it was a violin solos too so it was like perfect um but yeah that was that moment i just knew that then i'm like all right yep this is this is what i'm gonna do i have to work really hard but i'm gonna do it no matter what and yeah. well i'm still alive and i'm still surviving <laughs> music school so i guess it worked <laughs> um, but and how old were you yeah. when this happened you were a bit older um, yeah i would have been a freshman in high school then okay happened. okay because i know you've yeah. talked about how a lot of violinists start very very young Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I started violin then when I was 12. And yeah. A lot of people start when they're like four or five and they come from classical music families. Yes. Uh, aside from my brother playing percussion and he doesn't yeah. anymore, like no one else in my family was musicians. So they did not know what they were doing when yeah. I started that. Um, I'm very yeah. thankful for my teachers, though. You know, they kind of helped my parents figure out what you're supposed to do at the time. Exactly. So. No, that was yeah. that was absolutely something I was going to talk about, too, because there is such a difference when you're a singer versus when you're an instrumentalist, I know tons of instrumentalists who started at three, seven, you know, something like that. Um, I started piano at seven, um, but when I was um, like private lessons as a singer, you're not really supposed to start until you're, usually the, the number that I heard thrown around was 16 um, is yeah. because of just where you are in terms of puberty and your voice. So you're very much encouraged to just do choir until then. And that's something I also wanted to ask about, like, what was your music program like as a as somebody attending a public school? I was homeschooled my whole life. So for me, I didn't have school choirs or voice teachers or anyone. Um, so I joined uh, my piano teacher really pushed me when I was nine to audition for um, the Children's Course of Greater Dallas. Very, very prestigious downtown um, choral organization that had been around since the 90s. Um, and I remember that my mom had me try out for the Collin County Children's Chorus, which is like, it was a like split off of the bigger organization, but a little bit easier to get in. Didn't perform at quite the same level of venues in terms of like prestige. Um, and I auditioned for Collin County first and the director pulled my mom aside and said, hey, if Claire wants a spot here, she's got one, but are you having her try out for Dallas? Because she's honestly better and she should be in the Dallas one if you guys can handle the, the commute. So I was very lucky to have that resource as a homeschooler because I didn't have access to everything. But I was 15 before I started private lessons. And I think that is where some of these stereotypes come in that singers are not as intelligent as instrumentalists um, or don't have as much theory knowledge because oftentimes we're starting a little bit later in terms of our private training with our own instrument. Even if we're taking other music lessons and we're in choirs and things, you get a lot of that stamina and a lot of those personal habits in your private lessons. And for us, starting too early destroys your voice. That's why those like seven-year-olds who sing opera on you know talent shows, that that's strong wording here, but that's child abuse. Um, you know, you're taking a kid who's clearly passionate about music and you're exploiting them for the shock value of seeing a child sing. No child can sound like an adult in a healthy way. So that's a, a side, a little soapbox. But yeah, what was your, your experience in terms of like what, what was accessible to you as a public schooler? What do you feel like the quality of the music programs was? Yeah, um, it's interesting like how I felt at the time in the program versus now looking back at the program and being like, oh, like, Okay, I guess um, I had it better. I, I had it in the middle, I guess. Uh, in the mm -hmm. time, like I was very 
flustered. I felt like I was only pushed my freshman year um, by the seniors in our school. And even then I wasn't allowed to be in the top orchestra because we had uh, three orchestras and we just were not allowed. If you're a freshman, you're not allowed to be. So as soon as I got to my sophomore year, automatically I was concert master and I was still pushed in some ways. I got like a lot of solos. We did St. Paul's Suite that year. So it, if you know that piece, it yeah. was a lot of solos for the concert master. It was a lot. Um, and I liked having like people that were two, three years older than me, like working right below me. So it was like that constant pressure. They could always like take my spot. So I had that. Um, I also auditioned for ILMEA all four years of high school. Um, my directors got me into that right away, like auditioning. And shockingly, I made it my freshman year and then the rest of my years I made state as well. Yeah, so I had things to like push me. My private teachers were pushing me and I would do like side programs. Like there was the South Suburban Youth Orchestras, uh, Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestras, Protégé Philharmonic. Like I kind of went around to like different groups like that. Um, because our school program, just people were interested in music, but once you hit that high school level, it's like you start oh, yeah. to kind of figure out, okay, what am I gonna do? If I know what I wanna do and I know it's not music, am I gonna spend my time practicing? Am I gonna even spend my time in the program? Right. So there was a lot of like splitting off. And the biggest thing is that just a lot of people not practicing. And mm -hmm. so I was flustered because I spent a lot of my time like helping teach, which was helpful mm -hmm. to me, but I also, that was my time to play and perform and learn. Um, so I was very thankful to have stuff like outside of our school program. Um, but yes. like looking back at it now, I think my directors did an incredible job with what they could have done given the circumstances in our school program, um, giving me the extra opportunities and help, like letting me teach and um, just, yeah, we have a really nice like facility as well. It's like brand new. Um, so very lucky there. I say we, it's not like I work there. I think that's a, a common thing in like public school programs when you have that student that does want to go into music. Yes. It's it's complicated because you you yeah, you have a huge range of like levels of students and what certain yeah. ones want to do. And yeah, it's I think my directors did handle it well, although I did spend a lot of my high school years, upper high school years, like very flustered yes. <laughs> in my program. And my teachers knew it, but yeah, they did what they could. It was good. Did you know anyone else in your high school experience who ended up or wanted to go into music? Or were you kind of the standalone in that? Yeah, there were there were some that really wanted to teach. Um, and then the, the two actually that I'm close with, when I was a freshman, there were these two senior girls that I just looked up to so much. They both wanted to go into music. I still have contact with them today. They're amazing. I'm very kind. Um, both violinists and little freshman me at the time, we had our solo ensemble and I was like, oh my God, I should ask them if we can play a trio together for solo ensemble. And like, I was thinking they're going to say no. And I asked them and they said yes. And I was like, I was just, it made my world. And I think that they, they knew like that just made made my like life there because it was so cool like little me getting to play with the two older ones um so yeah like I got to know them pretty well I think that they were the the top ones at the time that I knew that wanted to go in music and that perform today and teach today um but then once they left it was the thing there weren't many people some would be like yeah I want to go to music and then like back off like no not mm. really so I I did feel kind of alone at school too not a lot yeah. of people had that interest like me which is why I was so excited to come to yeah. conservatory um that aged badly but yeah <laughs> yeah I, 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 yeah, I absolutely, I know, um, for me, I, I think we were probably similar in that we were kind of nerdy and goody two shoes when it came to like applying ourselves as young kids. And what I loved is that, you know, the majority of kids I was in my chorus with did not go into music. A few did. Um, but everyone was so dedicated, no matter what they wanted to do, they took it so seriously. And I, I remember occasionally we would get a new student who was 
a little bit more rambunctious and it wasn't cool. Like nobody admired that kid. Everyone was annoyed and they would get shut down so quickly. Either they would quit or they would get their act together. And I loved it so much because I was like, I finally, I don't feel like I'm gonna get bullied for taking this really seriously. Mm-hmm. And and I loved that because yeah, a lot of people wanted to go into med school or computer science or you know something completely unrelated or they just didn't know. But everybody knew that we were a part of something bigger. Um, and those opportunities are are were really invaluable. And I know for a lot of them who were enrolled in public school, Texas will always favor sports over music programs. Mm-hmm. And so having that access, having access to at minimum three concerts a year in the major in the Meyerson Symphony Center, which is like the major downtown symphony center, I performed at the opening of our Dallas Opera House before I had ever attended an opera because we performed at the grand opening. Um, so it's it's really fun to think that there are so many of these really iconic venues that I'm more familiar with the backstage of than the audience. Um, but I know that like finding those opportunities and and looking at where schools want to delegate money to can be really, really challenging. And I'm sure that's part of your passion for teaching is knowing just how many of those opportunities are stripped from kids. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. How did we meet and get to know each other? Mm. <laughs> um, Do you want to lay the groundwork for that? Uh, I can try. Okay. Well, Claire and I actually met this summer. So we're recording this uh, end of January, 2024. Uh, but we met at the end of summer um, through Instagram, technically, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. first is, yeah, kind of how we um, got to know each other. And so I found out that Claire had gone to my school as well. So that was obviously first and being a musician uh, that got us pretty close. Um, but she had heard about me first because I had a situation happen to me that I'm sure we'll eventually dive into more yes. and talk about um, my time at music school where I was groomed uh, by a professor here and had been sexually assaulted multiple times here. And it was over a, about a year and a half, two year period that that had happened and progressed. Um, and my story had gotten out at the time and Claire reached out to me and we've talked a lot um, since. So yes. we'll go more into that another time. Um, but that is actually how we met. And yeah, we talked quite a bit and yeah. we um, we started off like texting, but then it kind of just turned into like voice memo, like right. talking just because of like sake of like it's time efficiency. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You can like do the dishes too while you're listening. Yes. Like, oh yeah, like <laughs> um. So we were almost doing a podcast. Exactly. Yeah. So we were almost like doing a podcast already, and I used to do a podcast, actually, a music theory podcast. Um, and I just yeah, I started to really miss it, and I was like, oh, you know, like it'd be. I always want to get back into podcasting, and I think I said something like, man, we should do a podcast, and you were like down for it. I'm like, let's do it. Okay, cool. Um, and yeah, so here we are. Kind yeah, absolutely. About in an interesting way. <laughs> the next question was, what is your dream role or piece to perform? So I thought I was a soprano until the until the end of my first semester of college. I like to joke that I got mono and never got my high range back. But realistically, a lot of people have kind of been predicting that's the direction I would go to. Nobody really knows what they are at 18. Um, and uh, so when I had been a child, like growing up and attending the opera, all of the roles that I had pictured myself in had been soprano roles. And um, so my dream roles were like uh, Lucia from Lucia de la Mor, which is this incredible opera where this 
Scottish woman gets forced to marry somebody that she doesn't want to. And the entire final act is just a mad scene where she completely loses her mind, stabs her husband in the marriage bed while everyone else is still partying, you know, because that's how weddings would work back then. Um, and then comes out in her nightgown full of blood, holding a knife and sings one of the most like complex, incredible arias ever. And I remember seeing that as a as a kid and just my mom took me to that one and fell asleep. She's not a night person, but I don't know how you fall asleep through the final act of Lucia. Um, but I just remember looking over at her and being like, oh, OK, well, but I was enraptured. I, I, I really wanted that role. Um, and Tosca was another big one. And another a lot of these roles are very dramatic, um, very tragic, uh, you know, suicides or murders or something like that kind of dark. I live for the drama. I know like that's my favorite era of opera is like the high drama Victorian opera. And then when I became a mezzo, that completely changed what my perspective was going to look like. Um, but I still was very attracted to that high theatrical grand Victorian opera experience. Um, I'm not a modernist. I'm not a minimalist by any means. I know that it's very trendy to stage things with like we'll have no furniture, we'll have just black boxes and, you know, and, and everything's going to be like very minimal. I hate it. I hate it so much. Spend the money. Um, I want I want glitter and like I want extra. I want all of it. Um, when I found out that I was a mezzo, um, you know, I knew some of the most famous roles like Carmen is kind of the most well known for a mezzo. Um, but a lot of what I knew mezzos did was pants roles, which is, you know, where you're playing a like 13 year old boy. So you're playing a prepubescent boy, which is why they're usually voiced by women. Um, and that wasn't really appealing to me. The first role that I really saw that inspired me was uh, Jake Heggie's opera, um, Great Scott had just premiered in Dallas. And I flew, my mom's birthday was right around that premiere, so I flew from college home to go see it with her. And it's an opera about opera singers and the original cast star Joyce Dinado, famous mezzo, um, someone I really looked up to. And it was an opera about opera singers and about the culture of the opera world and the music world. Um, I remember the, the main aria, I still have so much of it memorized, um, even though I've never seen the sheet music for it. But that was the first time I could picture myself in a mezzo role. Um, there's, you know, this aria where Joyce's character um, sings to her music teacher about her dreams and says, um, you know, I wanted to be famous and wonderful, but famous and wonderful weren't enough. I want to matter if I don't. I'm a dancing dog. Um, I want what I do, what we all do to mean something um, and uh, to, to reach someone, even one person. I want to transform one life the way you've transformed mine um, and talks about what it feels like to wake up the day after a performance and what it feels like to give things up to become a musician, whether it's love or children or, you know, a, a sense of stability, a sense of sanity. Um, <laughs> and just feeling like you have this kind of otherworldly call to something and so that's a role that i would i would very much love to play but beyond that uh carmen's a big one uh delilah from samson and delilah really sucks a lot of the best mensa roles are in french and my french diction is the most difficult one for me but yeah those are those are kind of some of the 
the high and mighty. Oh, Amneris from Maeda. Um, that's a that's a big one. And it's Verdi, which again, favorite opera composer. So, yeah. Oh, awesome. I guess I have a very short answer. Um, <laughs> tying back to my other questions, Edgar Meyer's Violin Concerto. Very, very difficult, but in maybe another life, I will get to play something like that. Um, also, Shostakovich's first violin concerto. Um, yes. We, I was in the orchestra uh, when we had an incredible soloist. Oh my God, I look up to her so much. She performed it. She's just such a performer. So she really, she gave that piece justice. It was incredible. Um, and Shostakovich is my favorite composer. So yeah, yeah, those two. So is there any venue that we would love to perform at if given the chance? Um, for me, I just really loved getting to play at Symphony Hall in Chicago. Mm. It was really incredible. We don't really get to play there much anymore. Um, but it yeah. was a great experience for me growing up and seeing the CSO play and then getting to be on the stage myself. I remember the first time I asked someone to take a picture of me and I sent it to my junior high orchestra director just because that was the first time I had gone there. It was a trip with our school. And um, I think she printed out the picture, she said, and she showed it to her class and she's like, see, this is what you can get to the stage if you work hard because, you know, they get to watch um, CSO there too. Um, so yeah, just being there was incredible. And I hear so much about Carnegie Hall. I never been there, never, I don't even think I've seen a picture of it, but I just hear how incredible it is. So I guess I'm interested in learning more yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to um, have printout pictures in my bedroom growing up of the view of the stage for the Dallas Opera House, the Met, and the Paris Opera House, because those were like my big ones when I was young. Um, I, the Paris Opera one is kind of cliche because they have like a, they use it mostly for ballet now and they have a modern one they use for opera, but I, I like the old one. <laughs> um, so that's yeah. kind of like a, probably would never happen, but fantasy, the Civic Center, I'd be very interested in. Uh, I, I love the Auditorium Theater. We performed there once, but I, I really, it's it's beautiful. I love all the, the light bulbs, the exposed light bulbs and like that design there. And kind of a random one, but the Kodak Theater at Eastman, um, when I spent uh, a summer there doing doing their summer program in high school, um, we, we performed in their smaller, they have a lot of, you know, a lot of colleges have multiple um, theaters and stages. So we performed on the smaller ones typically, um, but they didn't lock anything. So we were always hanging out in that room. Like literally I would nap on the benches in there and things like that. It was always dark. But I remember like with my, my friends from that camp going on to that stage and just looking out and like picturing what it would have been like if I got to perform there. So kind of mm -hmm. childhood wish fulfillment things. Yeah, no, for sure. Same for both of us, I guess. Yeah, okay, I love this one. If we weren't in music, what would we have studied or done? Um, <laughs> well, I think uh, music's like my whole purpose and stuff, so that's like a, a really I know. interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, prior to music, like I mentioned earlier, I wanted to be a veterinarian, so I really mm -hmm. just loved animals. Um, I was also really into like weather stuff. Like I'd seen a lot of like the oh, interesting. storm chasers. And it's interesting for me, it's like tornadoes during the daytime, kind of cool. Tornadoes during the nighttime, not cool because I can't see them when they're coming. So um, I had an interesting relationship with like weather stuff. Um, but I did find yeah. that really, uh, really interesting. So it probably would have been something around those two. Uh, if I wasn't in music, um... That's so hard. I wanted to do it my whole life. I'd probably be a writer. I probably would have majored in English. I think about how easy that major would have been compared to 
everything that is music school. Honestly, almost any other degree would have been easier. Um, that would have been something that like, I probably would have been a writer or maybe a therapist. I think that's the other yeah. thing is something like psychology degree. Um, and that those are probably the only two things I can picture. I don't know that there, there aren't a lot of other things I'm good at, but I'm definitely passionate about, about those two things. Yeah, you know, something that my uh, private violin teacher from high school used to say, uh, he had a student that was like back and forth, like, I don't know, I think I want to like major in psychology or like, I don't know, I also want to go into music. I don't know which one to do. And he said to go into music because you want to do both. <laughs> There's a huge overlap. I see so many people yeah. who say that they would have either gone into psychology or music or they mm -hmm. music therapy to do. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. a strange amount of overlap. Yeah, not for sure. All right, how did our families respond to pursuing music? <laughs> Ooh. Um, okay, well, for me, I'd already kind of mentioned that my family are not into music at all, let alone like yeah. classical music background. Um, so they really didn't get it, <laughs> for sure. Um, it, I didn't really have my parents guiding me. They were supportive financially, for sure. And like, yes, instruments and paying for private lessons and programs, 100%. Like they wanted me to be involved. They wanted me to be successful. Yeah. Um, it was really the work of my private teachers, though, and even like my school teachers that helped kind of create that path for me. Because um, yeah. that was just something that my family couldn't really do. They just didn't have the experience with it they and trying to understand like. it. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very similar, um, super supportive financially. They always worried I would change my mind when I was little, which is why like when I was asking for piano lessons at three, they waited until I was seven. Um, they didn't want to buy a piano if I was going to like be bored, but I've never, I, when I commit to something, I commit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, it's um, also not, not musicians. Um, some of my extended family has done like musical theater and ballet, but you know, and my parents yeah. had taken, you know, some music lessons. My mom played flute, my dad played piano, but not like, you know, past childhood. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of the thing where they were, they were really willing, especially my dad to like research teachers and like get really into it. And, you know, it is funny because my mom still has very little confidence. She'll always say like, oh, you don't know, you know, I don't know anything about that. And, mm -hmm. um, and my dad now has like, strong opinions about things he really likes like um like turn of the century to 1920s opera he loves um he loves czech opera um he likes things that are a little bit more edgy than what i tend to be attracted to so it's interesting he was usually the one who took me because he's more comfortable driving downtown and is more of a night owl so he would take me to the operas when i was growing up so it is fun to see that he's developed his own taste um yeah. over time um but yeah, absolutely. They had, I didn't know this, but they had meetings like with my teachers secretly to like say like, is Claire delusional or could she actually do this? <laughs> um, so yeah, they didn't, they didn't really know what they were doing either. Um, but, you know, as long as I was working hard, I mean, I feel like a lot of parents feel like whether you pursue it or not, the stuff looks good on a college, like on the transcript applying for colleges. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of skills for learning music. Um, I'm sure they would have loved if I found something a little bit more lucrative, but <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think that's where I, I can like get away with it is because my sibling is becoming a doctor. So it's like, okay, right. well, we got the, the doctor, the financial thing here. So yes. then let her be the, the little music thing. Right. Um, yeah, see, I've got yeah. one who's a lawyer and the other one who studied right. ballet. So 
Yeah. A <laughs> little bit off-centered here, but yeah, and nothing to do with my parents. Like my dad's always worked in marketing and like advertising and my mom's an accountant. So mm -hmm. very, very different sort of personalities. I love this one. Who are our idols and inspirations? Um, That's a good one. Yeah, I'll kind of start with this and I'll try to make my answers as short as they can be because I have like, I guess, three categories <laughs> on the top of my head. Yes. Um, yeah, starting with, I mean, I feel like people expect me to be like, oh, Hilary Hahn or Ray Chen, they're like these top mm -hmm. violinists, but really, no. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love Hilary Hahn's technique. I think it's incredible. <laughs> um, but when I think of my inspirations and my idols, number one, I think of my teachers. Um, right. I think about my two um, private violin teachers in high school, uh, just how caring they were to their students. Um, how hard they worked. I still talk with my private violin teacher from high school, uh, one of them, and like, my God, there's a point where I think he had like 60 students, like private students, and plus just like playing in an orchestra and like just really doing it all. And I, he was really inspirational to me too because he also has IBS as I do. So he kind of taught me his like tips and tricks like to dealing with it. Um, and at first that, that was so awkward for me too. And I didn't really know how to go about, like I was so uncomfortable even saying I have IBS. Yeah. So um, he was one of the first that like I really had told it to, I was gonna be going to a music camp in Wisconsin. And I was like, oh my God, how am I gonna do this with this? And I had talked to him and just when that clicked with me, I'm like, wait, he has this, but he like plays in these orchestras and he teaches and he's like created this incredible like life for himself. So it's possible. And that was my first yeah. moment where I'm like, I can like, I can live, I can, I can make this work. Like I can be just like him. Um, so that was one. And then my current violin teacher, Almeida Vemos, oh my god, she, I think she's like 85 or 86. I don't think her age is a secret. Um, so she's like much older and she teaches so many private students. Like she has no plans on retiring. She just loves it. And she gives, she teaches, so she's giving to her students. She still puts on recitals. Um, She's really an inspiration just to like, there is no reason to give up. There's no reason to stop. No matter what happens in your life, you just keep going. Like sometimes in my lessons, like at the beginning, she'll tell me like this most horrendous thing happened to her. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, oh, are you okay? She's like, yeah, you know, just, just teaching. And I'm just like smiling. And I'm like, my God, I mean like, um, so yeah, she was really just big to me. It's like, no matter what happens, you just, you keep going. Um, and then two violinists from my school, I, I will name them because they know that I look up to them so much. Uh, Julemar and Gabby are two amazing yes. violinists. I, I, you know Julemar too. I know Julemar you know was in my classes, yeah. She's yeah. the one I did. Yeah, she's the one that played the Shostakovich violin concerto, so yes. that was just amazing. But it's her performance, the way she performs. And she has great technique too, but I cannot keep my eyes off of her when she performs. And yes. that was something she that really... a star. Yeah. yeah, it really opened my eyes up to like, you don't just sit there like scared to death and try to play your octaves in tune. No, you like perform. Um, so I just, yeah, I love it when she still comes to her studio class occasionally and plays yeah. and like, it's, yeah, it's amazing to me. Um, and then finally, lastly, uh, I have to mention this, but um, there's a Russian figure skater that is a huge inspiration to me and I can wholeheartedly say is the reason why I am still alive and here well today. Um, Alexandra Trusova, also known as Sasha Trusova, um, she was known just for her incredible work ethic and starting landing quad jumps in women's skating, which was like unheard of. Um, really difficult for men to do but then for the woman's yeah. body to do too is she was the start of it all and um i had really i was a figure skater when i was younger but i had heard of her more um 
it's almost been about a year now yeah since I, I heard about like the whole thing that happened at the Beijing Olympics in 2022 and I watched her routine which was I mean a lot of like women figure skaters do like more lyrical like dainty kind of routines which is nice but hers was just total opposite and not what you would expect just this like powerful strength like woman power is incredible uh, to Corolla and at the time I was going through very horrific abusive situation and she was also in an abusive dynamic with her coaches and hearing about how she had gotten away from her coaches and created this life for herself and still like kind of evolved into herself like didn't let them take that away from her was an inspiration to me to get out of my abusive situation which I did um so yeah she has very special meaning to me is, is why my I dyed my hair red like couple months ago <laughs> it's been I mean it faded out now but yeah so special meaning to me yeah, yeah I love yeah. that I love that um I got kind of civil I love how you are talking about like personal people because I think those are some of the best heroes that we can have I definitely mm -hmm. relate um my studio teacher Mark Creighton um huge inspiration just really one of those people that from the very first trial lesson I had he felt like family um and he's a countertenor and he has celiac and not similar to my health issues at all, but has talked about what it's like to live with chronic illness as an active working performer. Um, just somebody I really look up to. I also really looked up to um, my choir director, uh, Cheryl Frazes Hill. She was um, really somebody who believed in me when I don't know that I gave her a lot of reasons at first to believe in me. And just a, an example of how that faith in me that I could feel was very empowering um, and it gave me faith in myself. Um, not everybody takes the time to do that, um, you know, and teachers aren't perfect and attitudes in this culture are, there's a lot of toxic cycles that people get stuck in, but just in terms of who these people have been for me, they, they were life changing. Um, my childhood choir director for the uh, children's course at Greater Dallas, uh, Cynthia Knott, um, again, I, I always, every time I've had a choir director, I idolize them. I just like get tongue tied around them. Um, I loved her. I loved her so dearly. And she is, she was incredible. Um, it instilled me with discipline that I, as an adult, still see people trying to be drilled into in professional settings, um, in terms of how you walk on stage, your presence, your posture, professionalism, um, my favorite compliment when we were in choirs growing up was always, oh, you guys were better behaved than the adult chorus if we were doing like something collaborating with the Dallas Symphony Chorus or something. Um, so yeah, just a lot of a lot of personal um, people, but in terms of people I admire out in the world who I've never met, Joyce DiDonato is a big kind of obvious one. Um, my, my favorite mezzos are Alina Garanza. Um, I saw her in Carmen uh, when I was 13. Very, very famous Carmen performance. That was all I wanted for my 13th birthday was to go to New York and go to the Met and see her in Carmen. And uh, and she's just incredible technique um, and a voice type that I think I can relate to. And Frederica von Stad, who is older now, she was also in Great Scott uh, playing the music teacher. Um, and uh, yeah, incredible mezzo. Just her color, her her, her acting, her subtlety something I very, very much admire. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I know Dr. Phrases and uh, Mark also taught one of my classes. He's an amazing yes. lecturer too. Yeah, they're really great people.
<laughs> what are your future goals and how have you ended up where you are today? Uh, so I guess going into the future goals, definitely want to continue teaching private lessons that comes to violin, viola, cello lessons. I also tutor and teach my own curriculum of music theory lessons. Uh, strong interest in music theory. I'm hoping like also to teach at a public school, hopefully middle high school orchestra is kind of what I'm looking for, um, that they have like an AP music theory like program or something where I can like teach that as well. I always want to keep my ties to theory. I'm just nerdy that way. Yes. Um, You're a and... genius in that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you agree? What? You think you're a genius. And yeah, I mean, I was hoping to be in something sort of like regional orchestras like Illinois Philharmonic, Chicago Sinfonietta are a few that I really admire mm -hmm. that like teachers have been Worked in before the as well. They're great. Oh yeah? They're oh great. cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I've played some wedding gigs. I'm preparing for another wedding gig in June too. And just, yeah, those are, I cry every time. So, you know, like gigs and stuff like that. Um, I'm, yeah, like podcasting, little projects like this. I love managing social media pages. I have my own where I manage like showing like practicing and being in music school and like give like funny, funny videos and teaching instructional videos. So like uh, some sort of like marketing stuff I'm also interested in. Uh, yeah. Kind of, yeah, a wide variety of stuff. So I uh, hope just mostly to continue teaching and playing, but those are my side interests that I hope will sprinkle yeah. around there as well. <laughs> yeah. Um... My goals are also broad. Um, to be okay is a big one right now. <laughs> to survive uh, this world, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm a disabled uh, musician. I, I have uh, Potts and Ehlers-Danlos. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into that more in future episodes. Um, and when I leave the house, I use a walker. Um, and I, that was not the case when I was in college. Um, my, my health declined after I graduated. Um, I think I was keeping myself together by just sheer willpower. Um, and then as soon as I could relax, my whole body was like, ah, <laughs> never mind, we're going to fall apart. Um, so figuring out what a career path looks like for somebody disabled in this field that can be extremely judgmental, at times superficial, um, and not very accommodating, um, mm -hmm. especially when the competition is so high. There's always somebody more connected, richer, smarter, prettier than you. And if you're not able-bodied on top of that, why would they hire you when they have 200 people behind you in line who, who are? Um, so, you know, I always had a very, very traditional vision of what my dream would look like. I wanted to be an operatic soloist at a major opera company and perform in a very traditional sense. And now my lifestyle has changed. So yeah, being being okay, recovering from burnout, I really, really, it hit me hard. And I have a lot of guilt over what I haven't been doing. Um, and, uh, and just feeling like I know that that passion is still there, but why is it not safe physically for me to access this yet? Um, yeah, so I guess sort of recalculating what a career path looks like. Um, and I wanna make, the music world, the classical music world, a safer place. Um, I want to carve out my own space because I feel, and maybe this will change, ask me again in two years, but I feel like beforehand I wanted to get my foot in the door and then make positive changes later when I had power. I no longer feel like I want to be complicit in systems that perpetuate the kind of abuse, systemic abuse that I've seen 
in classical music culture and conservatory, I have seen so many incredibly gifted, hardworking people who have just been driven out of it because they don't want to participate in that anymore. And I want to make a space for all of us because their voices and their gifts deserve to be heard. So I don't want to participate if I'm not making the world of classical music better in some way, even if it's mm -hmm. small. Yeah. Kind of broad, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. Someone asked, will the podcast be more personal experiences in music or stories of other people's challenges? Kind of a mix. Um, I know yeah. we do have plans in the future to talk about more personal experiences, um, both yes. my own um, and some of Claire's. And I'm sure um, we'll kind of talk about this in the outro, but we're going to have some ways where people can kind of talk about their own stories and we can bring them into the podcast as well. And we'll have like guests and stuff in the podcast potentially in the future. Um, so it'll be kind of a combination. What is something you wish you could change about the classical music world? <laughs> oh, that could be its own episode. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. I can, uh, power dynamics, I think is the simplest yeah, way to yeah. sum it up. Power that dynamics. is the best way to sum it up. Yeah. I was thinking more like detailed problems. No, it's all about the power dynamics. That's where the problems occur. I'll second yeah. that. Yeah. Let's just leave yeah. it as that. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> we'll into get it more into in the future. Um, question, are the Suzuki books used by most teachers? I can kind of dive into this. I think this one was asked more on my personal account. As far yes. as I know, yes, the Suzuki books are very, very common in training, even for teachers that don't teach the Suzuki method. Um, just like myself, I kind of partially teach Suzuki method, but not entirely. I just prioritize music literacy a little sooner. But it's the way that the pieces and the books are arranged and ordered along with like scales and little technical things too that really helps lead into larger repertoire in the future and you can have little sideways pieces too that kind of go around so you're almost like developing your own curriculum like within the suzuki books um but a lot of those songs yes are used so everybody has their own way of teaching through the books um but i think yeah for a lot of teachers they're very very common i don't think i've met a teacher yet that does not teach out of the suzuki books what's something you wish you knew before going into music school well this is really depressing but for me, I had like, I had romanticized it so much and I had made it so like, this is it. I have to reach this point in life. Like, this is my goal. I was semi-miserable in high school because I just wanted to be with people that were like me and that loved music like me. And that just wasn't something I could get in a high school music program. Um, so I just, I worked my butt off and told myself every time things would get tough, like, I just got to make it, I just got to make it to conservatory. Then this will be like wonderful. And I ended up getting in my dream school with my dream teacher, everything worked out. And in reality, um, a lot of the really dark things that happen in music school are so hidden and covered that a lot of people aren't even aware of it. And it's or just accepted as yeah. like, this is how you pay your dues. This is what it's going to be. Yeah, that too. Um, and it was just something I was very unaware of. And I just thought school is safe, school is safe. So why wouldn't music school be safe? Um, so yeah, I think the, um, I, I wish that I didn't like make it to be that, that much because it was a huge letdown when I realized, um, the reality of it. And I don't want to be like the person like crushing people's dreams and being like, oh, no, it's horrible. But I think we're here, yeah, we're here to be real with people and nothing is yeah. all good or all bad. And I would rather be uncomfortably honest than hide things from people. That doesn't mean that we mm -hmm. have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that this industry can't even exist, but it is due for an overhaul. 
Yeah. I wish, yeah, I guess I, that I just knew that it's not the most welcoming, supportive environment that they seem. You know, like when you're going to any college and they're like, oh, come to this school and the happy smiling yeah. pictures of the students. Like, of course, that's what music mm -hmm. schools are going to look like too. But in reality, it is no. not all like that. And it's... Everyone's having complete, a mental breakdown in the hallway. That too. And yeah, it can be the complete opposite um, where people yeah. are just 100% not supportive of you and things can be really dark. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wish that I was just aware that this, this can happen. Don't, I'm not going to say it will happen to you, but these things can happen. Just be yeah. aware of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely second that. Um, I don't think it surprised me how hard it would be. I think I, I mean, there's no replacement for experience. So I didn't know, but I, I expected it to be very difficult. And it was. Um, so some of it's more personal. I wish I had known about my health issues before I started school. Um, that would have given me a, a leg up because I was figuring out all of that in real time while trying to schedule doctor's appointments while you're not allowed any absences and you know and that was very very difficult uh there was no way this could have happened but i wish i had known that the pandemic was coming <laughs> um yeah. you know uh yeah i wish um i also wish that i had known more about high control environments um we'll definitely probably get into this in future episodes but um i came from a very very high control church that i grew up in that not everyone would, but I would classify, and several hundred people who've gotten out would also classify as a cult. And um, jokes that my friends say is the fastest way to get out of one cult is to join another. Um, and in a sense, a music school is a is definitely a high control environment. And I know things now about like the bite model, which is a, a tool for recognizing cults and high control environments. Um, not again not saying that this this kind of program can't exist or that there is nothing redeemable about it but i wish that i had started the process of learning about some of this stuff earlier because i think i could have been stronger in myself had i known what to look for and what to not take so seriously because there's a lot of yeah. grandstanding there's a lot of professors and sort of institutions that will tell you this is the way things are and they'll never be any different and if you don't like it you can leave and that's only true as long as we let it be true. Yeah. Now, music school is like walking through a field while people are like shooting at you from everywhere. It's like yeah. walking through war. <laughs> and I think that's just something to be aware of. It's like, it, and no one, no one wants to admit this, but in every single way, there are going to be constant attacks at you to just give mm. everything up and to quit. People will say it straight to your face too. Oh yeah. Um, and this really, for you. maybe you shouldn't be here yeah. um, to make it through to go to music school in general, but to make it all the way through, I think, is a huge mm -hmm. success in itself. I mean, I saw so many dropouts and, and they love to. I think this isn't unique to our school. A lot of conservatories love to brag about their dropout rate as though it is what makes them selective and impressive. Look, it's uh -huh. so hard that people are dropping out left and right. Not everyone can do this. Um, rather than looking at things like a 50% fail rate for a class and saying, huh, maybe there's something going on with us. <laughs> and that, that lack of like accountability within themselves is, it's very discouraging. I, I, I didn't expect that. I didn't expect mm -hmm. how much they don't want to teach you. They almost just yeah. want to polish you. Um, extreme rapid fire. I called this one questions courtesy of Joe, uh, which is Claire's husband. <laughs> um, why are baritones so handsome? <laughs> so they can get the mezzos. Ah. <laughs> what concept was not taught early in your musical education that you wish had been taught on day one? 
correct technique. <laughs> so for me, I mean, this is complicated because like I said, my first violin teacher, she knew my passion was there. So I don't think she wanted to like be really critiquing and like on me to like destroy that love for music. But I already had it and I already wanted to practice. So her being so carefree about the bow hand and about left hand technique, it was a pain because then I had to work on that, breaking all these bad habits later on, um, which was very discouraging to me and made yeah. things worse for me. So I, yeah, for me with my students, I'm proper technique right away, right on. Otherwise, like, I mean, we make things fun as well, but there's ways to make technique fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's something that should be taught right off the bat, right away, correctly. That's another thing that's difficult with singers. Uh, a lot of people will say you don't learn technique until you're like halfway through college because proper technique is damaging if you're too young. Uh, there are probably some people mm -hmm. who would fine tune that a little bit more than the way that I'm putting it. And obviously science is updating all the time. Maybe some of my information is out of date, but everyone would like say like up until maybe my second year in school, like they didn't even use the word technique. Um, and certainly not when I was taking lessons in, in school. So that is interesting because, yeah, you do feel like their goal almost when you're young is to not mess anything up. They're uh -huh. just like, we don't want to do anything too intense because we don't want to damage you. And then later when you get it's almost like you're not supposed to be doing this at 18. <laughs> um, it's almost like the timeline doesn't work. I wish I had a lot of theory. I was taking theory from the time I was four, and yet I still very much struggled with it in college. I wish that there was more awareness of learning differences and potential learning disabilities in how we teach theory. Because we have a lot of research in that for reading, math, sort of your basic things. But when it comes to learning differences in a more niche field, we don't. We, we teach it one way, and if you don't get it, you leave. Um, so I wish that I had had somebody who had noticed some of my issues with visual processing and potentially, you know, some, some of what was actually at the heart of my learning style, uh, so that I could have gone in with a stronger foundation in, in theory and more confidence in that. Uh -huh. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a wrap of the very first episode of the podcast and of season one in general. Uh, I hope this kind of helped to give you a little bit of an idea of Claire and I's backgrounds and music and just who we are as people. Our next few episodes will be diving into more particular topics uh, and then eventually, you know, adding on some guests and talking about some of our own personal experiences and getting more into everything. So um, if you have any questions, any ideas, stuff you want to talk about, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, you can reach us at our email, dissonantdialogues at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a phone number. So this is a little thing we're going to call curtain calls where it's automatically set to voicemail. So if you call the number, it will bring you to the voicemail. We'll be able to listen to it. We can even play it on the podcast and you can leave any suggestions, ideas, questions there as well. That's right. That number is 872-216-9032. Uh, we also have an Instagram and a TikTok, Dissonant Dialogues. So you can go on there, give us a follow. We'll kind of share some, you know, behind the scenes of recording the podcast, some really like top moments of each episode stuff like we'll edit for the social media stuff um yeah that's that's pretty much it so see you next time bye i remember i refused to have dolls who were blonde with blue eyes um because i was like too many dolls and too many princesses are blonde with blue eyes mm -hmm. in the top
top program or top rubber. Yeah, top. Well, I really hope that ambulance is not that loud in the background. <laughs> I can hear it a little bit, but I'm sure I can edit. Okay, I was gonna say for yeah, people listening, we're just gonna hear that because yes. unfortunately, I'm very, <laughs> I'm like life. right in Chicago. Yeah, so we'll just get used to it. Um, <laughs> I know you can hear the train. <laughs> All right, get back in the closet. Where's my cat? <laughs> Thank you.